Vrindavan Dhamaki Jai, Matura Dhamaki Jai, Navadweep Mayapur Dhamaki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamaki Jai, Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pacharni Nivasesa Sinivani Paskatyade Satarani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitamstam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakalpachubischa Kripasindabhyabhatapadijanam Pavanavyo Vaishnavavya Namonamaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's January 30th, 2024 in Melbourne, Australia and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 4, Chapter 13 The Behavior of a Perfect Devotee, Text 29 Jalam tad udbhavais chanam Hit vajno jalakam yaya Mirgach 
Mirgachrinam Upadvavet Tatanya Charta Driksvata Please chant. Mirgach Trishnam Upadvavet Tatanya Drarta Driksvata Chalamtad Ubhavaischanam Hitvagno Jalakamyaya Mirgachrishnam Upadvavet Tatanya Charta Driksvataha Jalamtad Ubhavaischanam Hitvagno Jalakamyaya Mirgatrisnam Upadvavet Tatanya Tarta Driksvataha Chalam Tadu Bhavaischanam Hitvagno Jalakamyaya Mirgatrisnam Upadvavet Tatanya Chartra Driksvataha Chalamtad Ubhavaischanam Hitvagno Jalakamyaya Mirgatrisnam Upadvavet Yatanya Tarta Driksvataha Jalam, water, tat udbavai, by grass grown from that water, chanam, covered, hitva, giving up, agnyaha, a foolish animal, jalakamyaya, desiring to drink water, mirgatrisnam, a mirage, Upadvavet runs after Tata similarly Anyatra somewhere else Artadrik self-interested Swataha in himself So any of you kids who have paper and pencil maybe you can draw a picture of what's being described in this verse can you try that? Can you try drawing a picture of it? And then we can look at it at the end of the class. Is that all right? Do you have any paper? No, no paper. Okay. So Srila Prabhupada's translation. Just as a deer, so you got a deer, because of ignorance, cannot see the water within a well covered by grass. So you've got some water, 
but it's got grass over it. So when the deer looks at it, it doesn't see that there's any water. But runs after water elsewhere. So the deer's running away from the water because it doesn't see the water, and it's running to another place. The living entity covered by the material body does not see the happiness within himself, but runs after happiness in the material world. Srila Prabhupada's purport. This is an accurate example depicting how the living entity, because of lack of knowledge, runs after happiness outside his own self. When one understands his real identity as a spiritual being, he can understand the supreme spiritual being, Krishna, and the real happiness exchanged between Krishna and one's self. It is very interesting to note how this verse points to the body's growth from the spirit soul. Now this is, this is an interesting point because this is a very indirect understanding. This is using anuman, that just like grass is growing from water, so the body grows from the soul. This is Prabhupada's making this point. The modern materialistic scientists think that life grows from matter, but actually the fact is that matter grows from life. The life or the spiritual soul is compared here into water from which clumps of matter grow in the form of grass. One who is ignorant of scientific knowledge of the spirit soul does not look inside the body to find happiness in the soul. Instead, he goes outside to search for happiness, just as a deer, without knowledge of water beneath the grass, goes out to the desert to find water. The Krishna consciousness movement is trying to remove the ignorance of misled human beings who are trying to find water outside the jurisdiction of life. Raso vai saha. What does Raso vai saha mean? Very famous. Srila Prabhupada quotes this all over the place. I have a god brother for whom this is his favorite quote. No? It means he is rasa. The Supreme Lord is rasa. Then Prabhupada says something very interesting here. After saying raso vai saha, he is rasa. He says rasoham apsukontea. What does that mean? I'm the taste of water. Raso vai saha, rasoham apsukontea. Now, I spent quite some time trying to understand what Prabhupada means in these two sentences. So I'm going to ask also all of you to help me out. What does Srila Prabhupada mean in these two sentences? The taste of water is Krishna. To quench one's thirst, one must taste water by association with Krishna. This is the Vedic injunction. So Prabhupada is obviously here not just speaking literally. He's clearly here also speaking metaphorically. Hare Krishna. But what exactly he's indicating here, uh, I found rather mysterious. Jalam tad u bhavaschanam hitvagno jalakam yaya mirgachtrishnam upadvavet tetan yatartadrik swataha. Just as a deer, because of ignorance, cannot see the water within a well covered by grass, but runs after water elsewhere, 
the living entity covered by the material body does not see the happiness within himself, but runs after happiness in the material world. So what time do we end? Nine o'clock. People don't have to go to work? Or school? Or everybody stays so late? Okay. So we have this picture. Some of you drawing some pictures? Yes? So what do we have? What do we have in our picture? You've got to have at least three things in your picture. What's in your picture? A deer. The grass, that water un under the grass, right? And then the deer's got to be running away from that. So you've got some water covered by grass. Have you ever walked in grass and you found it was super wet? Like really, really, not just like wet from dew or from rain, but it was like sloggy? Yeah, so when you put your, your foot in the grass, like water went into your shoe? Yeah, so that's what's being talked about here. So there's, there's water, but you don't see it. You look at a, a grassy space and you think, oh, there's grass, I'll walk on the grass. But when you walk on it, the water gets in your shoes because it's so wet. So in the same way, we look at each other and we just see bodies. We're not seeing the soul. The first time that I met Shula Prabhupada, he was speaking about this, how we all want to see God, but we don't even see the soul. He said, if you can't see a little part of God, how are you going to see God? And because he, would, he gave the example he gives all the time, that, you know, your father's died, and you're crying, my father's died, my father's died, but all you're seeing is the body. So we don't see the soul. We're not, we're not even aware of the soul. And Prabhupada talks about here how people think that the soul is just a product of matter, that life is a product of matter that somehow when matter gets very complicated, it will all of a sudden become conscious of itself. And this is, of course, people are terrified that this, is, this phenomena is going to happen with computers and artificial intelligence. This is a, a major trope of so much modern fiction. You know, I, I remember that when, when I was very young, there was this movie of this, you know, computer that becomes alive on a spaceship and and takes over the spaceship. And I'm sure there's been many, many movies and books like that since then. And this is people's main fear, you know, that they'll be, the computers will become alive. And of course, when they become alive, they seem to be always malicious. <laughs> they never become alive and beneficent. They're always malicious, and they always want to take over society and kill all the humans. But this is, of course, rubbish. Your computer is never going to become alive, no matter how complex it becomes. It just, it's just not going to happen. Because matter doesn't produce life, life produces matter. And Prabhupada talks about the lemon tree is producing chemical citric acid. You know, Prabhupada was a chemist. So he would sometimes talk about chemistry. But it's not that you can combine citric acid and you get a lemon tree. Or Prabhupada would talk about how the scientists are saying, well, we can combine these chemicals and create life. He said, so, so do it. So do it. 
I remember one of my Gurukul students once said to me, you know, I can cook a 10-course meal in 45 minutes. I said, okay, I'd like to see this. And of course, all she got done in 45 minutes was like cutting the broccoli and washing the beans. <laughs> you know, as we say, at least in America, put your money where your mouth is. Prabhupada would call this a post-dated check. I remember something that really struck me was an article by my god sister Vishaka in Back to Godhead. She used to write the columns about cooking because she was the one who tested Jamuna's recipes for her cookbook. And she was saying how the scientists have never been able to create a grain of rice. And I was like, that's a fact. Because a grain of rice is a seed. There's a soul there. So they can, you know, manufacture things. They're so proud. They say they're going to do this. Again, when I was a kid, you know, I used to watch this TV show called Star Trek where these people go into outer space and they have a computer that synthesizes food. They don't have like a garden in their spaceship, you know. It's just they pour some chemicals. Like you see sometimes um, this fake ice cream like that. Have you ever seen that? where they have these ice cream machines, they just pour a bunch of chemicals in there and it comes out and looks like ice cream. So their computer, they just put in a bunch of chemicals and the computer synthesized food. And when I was a kid watching this, must have been like in the 60s, I guess. So we thought this was all wonderful. We're like, wow, someday we won't need agriculture anymore. You know, we can just produce chemicals in our laboratory and it will be something that's alive. But that, that's never going to happen. Unfortunately, because we think that life is a product of matter and all we see is matter, we think that happiness is to be found in matter. And we're all pleasure seeking. This is such an important point to understand of our philosophy. Ananda Mayobiyasat. We are pleasure seeking beings. We cannot live without seeking pleasure. It is just impossible. You cannot say, well, I'm just going to live without looking for enjoyment. It, it's our intrinsic nature that we will look for pleasure. Like the military have heat-seeking missiles, you know? And we're, we're pleasure, we're going to be looking constantly, constantly scanning our environment for pleasure. Okay, but we're making a very big mistake. We already have pleasure. It's actually kind of phenomenal and amazing, this mistake that we're making. We don't see that we already are full of pleasure. We're seeking something that we already have. I'm sure on a simple mundane level, we've had the experience of buying something only to discover that we already owned it. Has everyone had this experience? You think, oh, I really need one of these. And you buy the thing, and then you discover, I already had one. Why did I buy it? I forgot that I had one. And we already have everything that we need. It's, it's incredible to me that we're constantly thinking that I need something from outside. Prahlad Maharaj talks about this. He says we actually already have all of our happiness and we become un unhappy when we start to look for it. 
Now, psychologists have analyzed this, and I think this is also quite interesting. Why does the search for happiness make us unhappy? The very act of looking for happiness makes us unhappy. Because the act of looking for happiness implies that I don't already have it. It implies a scarcity. So how is it that I already have happiness? Because it doesn't feel like that materially. Does it? As, as a conditioned soul, it doesn't feel like I'm already happy, that I already have happiness. It feels like I'm missing it, I'm lacking it in some way, and that I have to go and find it somewhere. So what happiness do we have? It's so beautiful what Srila Prabhupada says here. It's just so beautiful. I don't know, we're, we're you know, there's gazillion teachers and philosophers and religious leaders on the planet <laughs> at any given time. Anyway, it's just really appreciating Srila Prabhupada in this purport. So he's saying here, right, our real identity as a spiritual being, and when we understand our real identity as a spiritual being, we understand the supreme spiritual being, Krishna, and the real happiness exchange between Krishna and oneself. So when we understand I'm a soul, we don't understand that in isolation. A soul doesn't exist in isolation. As soon as I understand I'm a soul, I understand that I'm part of Krishna. It's like as soon as you understand that there's Krishna, you understand that I'm part of Krishna. They're simultaneous. Prabhupada would say when you see the sun, you see yourself. In this case, when you see yourself, you also see the Lord. It's, it's impossible to see ourselves without understanding the Lord. Now, sometimes people who see themselves and the Lord mistake that they are the Lord. Because one sees oneself as part of the Lord, they become confused and they think, well, we're one. Because in a sense, we are one. A chintabeta beta tattva, in one sense, we are one. Mamai vamsa jiva loke jiva bhuta sanatana. Prabhupada, I was just hearing Prabhupada yesterday talk about this. How, you know, although we're eternally a fragment, spirit cannot be fragmented. Krishna says the soul cannot be cut, and neither can Krishna be cut. You know, Hiranyakashipu was saying he wanted to cut off the head of Vishnu. But you, you can't do that. This is why, like, if we make puzzles for children, we shouldn't make it so Krishna's body is cut. So they can make this mistake. But the point is, when we see ourselves, we see Krishna. And when we see Krishna, we see ourselves. We're always together. And then we understand something that there is an exchange between us. You could also say impersonalists are not seeing fully. So not only are they seeing and making, making a mistake, but they're not seeing fully. I was just listening to Srila Prabhupada say, if we surrender partially, we understand Krishna partially. When we surrender fully, we understand Krishna fully. We, we can understand this from our human relations. If I trust you a little bit, I'll reveal a little bit of my personality and my desires to you. I'll reveal to you about myself in accordance with how much I trust that you're not going to use that information to hurt me. And if I trust you completely, I'll reveal everything. I don't know if there's anybody, any jiva that I've ever trusted 100% like that. <laughs> 
But that's, that's the situation, and so the impersonless or a neophyte devotee can understand Krishna just partially. And Prabhupada talks about you see a mountain from a distance and it looks like clouds. When we were up at New Govardhan, I was noticing that, especially early in the morning. The, the mountains and the clouds almost seemed to merge when they were at a distance. It was hard to see what is a mountain and what is a cloud. And then when you go closer, you can see that here's the vegetation, here's the animals. Right? And you go even closer, you see here's the houses, here's the people, and so forth. So to see yourself, you could see yourself vaguely, partially, and become confused. Or you could just have a general confusion because there is a oneness. But there is a relationship between Krishna and the soul. I mean, even, even if you're understanding the oneness, there's something. You're still seeing some relationship because you're feeling you're getting your pleasure from God, although you're kind of misinterpreting that. Uh, something I, I quote a lot is Srila Bhakti Sinatya Sarasvati, who said that, anand, that the anandam buddhivardhanam of the first verse of the Shikshastika, unlimited ocean of happiness, can be tasted by the finite jiva when they're in connection with Krishna. So even the impersonless is understanding something of relationship, although they're not understanding it as relationship. They're, they're not categorizing it like that, but they're understanding I'm getting happiness because I am God, rather than I'm getting happiness because I'm in a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, you know, somebody serves a great person and they, they're getting so many benefits from serving a great person, and then they might think, well, I am the great person. So this relationship with Krishna is already there. That particular point, somehow or other, in our general Gaudiya Vaishnava Sangha has become controversial. I don't know why it's become controversial. Well, I have some good guesses as to why it's become controversial. But that relationship is already there. It always exists. If that relationship wasn't already there, then one would in need, indeed need to seek happiness outside of oneself. Do you follow the logic of this? If I had to get my relationship with Krishna from something outside of myself, then I would be looking for happiness outside of myself. It's actually a very simple point. And the Shastra continuously tells us, stop looking for happiness outside of yourself, as in this verse. But throughout all the Vedic literatures, I mean, aside from the Puranas, you go to the original Vedas, one of the main points is that you already have happiness within you. You, are, you already have everything you need within you. You don't need to get it elsewhere. And of course, this point is one of Srila Rupa Goswami's key points. Bhakti is not obtained from any other source. It already exists within yourself. Again, if we think it doesn't, then this whole verse becomes meaningless. It's already there. Our relationship with Krishna is already there. I'm already existing as a person. As Krishna says, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor or all these kings, not me, nor you. Not. Prabhupada says first person, second person, third person. I've always existed, you've always existed, all of these other people have already existed. 
in the past, in the present, in the future. We're always individual persons. And Krishna is always there. And our relationship with Krishna has to be there. Even if we fall asleep, it's still there. Even if we forget it. Right? You're still sitting here, even if you fall asleep. You may lose awareness of that. You're sitting here and you're falling asleep. Do I need to be more entertaining? But we're actually still in the same place. Prabhupada gives this example of illusion. You know, you're in a place, but because you're sleeping, you're not aware that you're in that place. So we, we already have this relationship with Krishna. It already exists. It has always existed. Nobody can ever take it away from us. It, it's who we are. We are a person. If someone says, well, we have the ability to become persons, as, as someone who is trying to spread this philosophy that bhakti is not inherent, said to me, well, we're potentially persons. We're not potentially persons, we're persons. And Krishna says in the Chatur Sloki of the Bhagavatam, Whatever appears to be of value, we have this word artadric, whatever appears to be an arta, whatever appears to be of value, Krishna says, if it's not in relationship to me, it has no reality. He says, know it to be my illusory energy, that reflection which appears to be in darkness. So I had somebody arguing with me that, well, we're a person in the sense that in each life I have a personality but I don't have an inherent spiritual personality. And I said, well, our personality in each life is an illusion. In some lifetime, we may be very shy and introverted. In another lifetime, we may be very outgoing. We may, we may be born one lifetime in Japan and have Japanese culture as our normal way of living. In another lifetime, we're born in Australia and we have Australian culture as our normal way of living. One lifetime we're male, one lifetime we're female. One lifetime, you know, we're a plumber, and one lifetime we're a scientist. None of those can be ultimately real. That can't be that I have this personality just materially. I must have a spiritual personality that is eternal and in relationship to Krishna. All right. Now, what is that relationship with Krishna? So everybody knows this, yeah? What are our re possible relationships with Krishna? You all know this? Definitely. Background music. Yes, that's our relationship with Krishna. Ooh, it's very beautiful. So what are the relationships we can have with Krishna? Hmm? Dasya, we can, we can have the mood of a servant. Sakya, yes, a friend. Vatsalya, a parent. Madhurya, we can be Krishna's wife or Krishna's girlfriend. Yes? And there's also a neutral relationship with Krishna. 
One can have a, a passive relationship with Krishna. And then there's the seven secondary rasas, which are also considered by Srila Rupa Goswami as staibhavs. And what are those? Hmm? Chivalry, yes. Humor. Hmm? Astonishment. Hmm? Ghastliness. I think we said that already, humor. Anger. Two more. Fear and compassion or lamentation. Right? Just like there's now this big hoopla about the Ram Temple in Ayodhya, and Ram Lila is primarily in what secondary rasa? Which one? Ah, oh, come on. Lamentation, yes. The Ramayana is essentially a tragedy. Uh, it's primarily Karuna rasa. So there's also these seven secondary rasas. And then they also have many subdivisions. Like in Dasiras, there's the servants in Maikmatara and Dwarka, the servants in Vaikuntha. Then there's the more intimate servants in Vrindavan. Then also in Dasiras are considered Krishna's children, grandchildren, although with the grandchildren it's more... Um, friendship is mixed in more. Isn't that interesting? The grandchildren have more of a feeling of friendship mixed in with their, their servitorship. Like Prabhupada says, the grandparents are more affectionate. And then the younger brothers and sisters. You know, Krishna had a lot of younger brothers and sisters. Because Vasudev had, what, 16 wives, I think? And so a lot of them also had, you know, they all had children that were Krishna's younger brothers and sisters. So they also have this mood of dasya. So many, many subcategories. And then you look at Sakyabhav. So what are some categories of Sakyabhav? Hmm? Arjuna, yes. So you have the city friends like Arjuna. I find it interesting that that's the only place Shilubra Goswami mentions a woman. Who is the woman that's in Sakyabhav? Draupadi. So, because Shilubra Goswami only gives a few examples of each of these as the ashraya. So he mentions the Pandavas and Draupadi as friends in the city. And I think it's reasonable to assume that if Krishna had one f friend who was female, that I'm sure he has many others. I'm sure she's not the only one in the whole spiritual world. And then he has friends in Vrindavan. And what are the categories of friends in Vrindavan? Madhu Mangal, yes, okay. So Madhu Mangal is, is a certain, and he's also primarily in Hasyaras. Also, he's always joking around. So there's older friends who have mixed parental and friendship, equal friends, 
of the same age, younger friends who have mixed friendship and servitorship, and then within his equal friends, so he still has varieties, intimate, more intimate, most intimate. He has some friends like Madhu Mangal who are also facilitating his romantic affairs. I'm going to pass a message to the gopis for you and I'll bless you, you know, if you give me ladus, I'll bless you so that Radharani will smile at you. And, and then there's friends who don't know anything about Krishna's romantic activities at all. They're completely unaware that Krishna has these activities. They're, they have no involvement. So there's, there's various levels of friends. Right? And then parents. So you've got, of course, Krishna's parents like Nanda and Yasoda, but then you also have his parents like Vasudeva and Devaki. And then you have like Vasudeva's other wives are also in that mood of Krishna's parents. And then you have the friends of Yasoda and the friends of Nandamarsh and the friends of Rohini. And you have those who act as teachers or, you know, some people who act as elders in some way who are seeing the Lord as a, as a child with the kind of affection we have towards a child. And then in Madhurya Bhav, so what are our categories there? Yes, we have Sakya and Parakya, Sakya and Parakya, so we have the married queens and then we have the girlfriends, and then there's categories there. There's more submissive and there's more argumentative and there's younger and middle and older and, and Srila Rupa Goswami in his Ujwala Nilamani gives 360 categories. And he says this is just a little bit because actually every single devotee has their own category. I mean, Chilurupa Goswami also gives categories for the seven secondary rasas. Like chivalry has four categories. Does anyone know what the four subcategories of chivalry are? Okay, there's Yudavir. Yudavir is when you're enjoying fighting with Krishna, play fighting. Or if Krishna's watching you fight with someone. So if Krishna's watching the cowherd boys, some cowherd boys wrestle with each other, that's Yudavir. Then you have Dharmavir. Dharmavir is when you're enjoying being righteous for Krishna. And actually, even people in this world who enjoy being righteous for Krishna, that can be a segue to Shantarasa. That can actually lead to neutrality and beyond that. Then you have Dhyavir. Dhyavir is where you have the sense of being merciful, especially being merciful to Krishna, usually because you don't know it's Krishna, but being merciful to Krishna. And then there's Dhanavir, where you get a rasa with Krishna through charity. And this can be giving charity to Krishna in a disguised form or giving charity in general in order to please Krishna. When we teach uh, career dharma this weekend, we'll talk about how one of the principles of career dharma is charity. And when one gives charity to please Krishna, that can become rasa. That can actually become a chivalrous rasa. And then the rasa of fear. You can be afraid of some demon who's going to hurt Krishna. You can be afraid of Putana, for example. You can be scared that you're going to get in trouble with Krishna because you committed an offense. Or you can be scared that, you know, some elder is going to find out about Krishna's naughty activities. So there's different varieties, right? With anger, there's, you know, anger at Krishna. 
There's anger at the demons who are trying to hurt Krishna. Mother Yasoda sometimes gets angry at Krishna, right? You naughty boy, stop this. Stop breaking the butter pots. I made this butter for you. So there's all this variety, variety, variety. When we say, Raso Vaisa, Krishna is Rasa, it means that Krishna himself, Ashila Rupa Goswami also says, Akila Ras Amrita Murti. Krishna is the form of all Rasas. Now, Rasa is not just, we talked about the five primary and the seven secondary. Those are five primary and seven secondary Staibhavs, which can become Rasa by the adding of other ingredients. So we have the stimulus for those feelings. And that has categories. That has alambana and udipana. And alambana has categories. Vishaya of Krishna, ashraya, the devotees. And udipana, the stimulus. That has so many categories. I'm going to be teaching Krishna meditation tonight and uh, Thursday night to see everything in the world as a stimulus for love of God including water, as Prabhupada talks about here. And then we have the sattvic abhavs. You know, your hairs stand on end, or you shiver, or you perspire because you love Krishna. And then we have the vyavichari bhavs, all the different emotions. Srila Goswami lists over 30 different emotions. And you have the anubhav, the way we express our love for Krishna. And you put that all together and you get rasa. Kind of like you make a smoothie with all different things put in it. So, you know, you add these five components of rasa, which all have so many categories and subcategories. I was in a devotee's house in Brisbane, and she had a pantry. You know what a pantry is? Like a big closet kind of thing. And she had this shelf full of more spices than I've seen in a grocery store. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're really equipped here. She said, well, I cook Indian food, Italian food, Chinese food. It all needs different spices. So, you know, you have all this variety going into make rasa. And my dear friends, this is an unlimited variety. You, know, you go to a restaurant, you have some restaurants here, are you reading the scores from the restaurants? They don't have an unlimited variety in the menu. Maybe there's five different drinks or ten different kinds of drinks, but you might ask for something, they say, well, we don't have that, we don't make that. But in Krishna's restaurant, there's everything. And that's Krishna himself. So th this is a very amazing point. Krishna is himself tasting at every moment every possible combination and variety of rasa. So I like to give the example just like you can go to an ice cream shop, and they have, when I was growing up, they had ice cream shops with 33 flavors. But I'm sure there's ice cream shops with 50 flavors. We have our ice cream shop in Dubai that has natural flavors. It has Chiku ice cream and Sitapal ice cream. And if you ever go to Dubai, you gotta go have ice cream at Govinda's. Right. So many different kinds of ice cream. Or we have our donut shops in New York, where you can get, you know, all these, all these varieties of donuts, baked donuts, fried donuts, filled donuts, glazed donuts, this donuts, that donuts. 
And then we think about the natural world. How many varieties of mangoes are there? When I first visited Trinidad, my first trip there, the devotee who picked me up at the airport said, I have a, a nice present for you. And she gave me a red delicious apple all wrapped up very carefully. I said, you're giving me a red delicious apple. She says, yes, this is very valuable because in Trinidad they don't grow apples, you know. You have to have cold weather to grow apples. She says, it costs, you know, so much money per apple. And I said, you know, thank you very much, but in America we have red delicious apples everywhere in great abundance. I, I, I didn't tell her, like, this is kind of the most common and ordinary fruit that we have in the United States. I said, well, I was really coming here to get mangoes. She said, oh, here the mangoes are rotting on the side of the road. <laughs> and then she said, what kind of mangoes would you like? We have at least 40 different varieties of mangoes. So imagine if you were tasting all, the, and this is just the lowest of the middle planets in the material world, in this material universe. It's like you get to the earth planet, you've just made it into the middle class, you know, you've just like gone over the railroad track into the good neighborhood. And as described in the heavenly planets, there are fruit trees that have fruit without skins and without seeds and they fall from the trees and they make rivers of fruit juice. And the demigods, when they eat this, drink this fruit juice, they smell nice for 80 miles. Imagine that. No one's yet manufactured a perfume like that, right? It makes you smell nice for 80 miles. <laughs> Actually, um, Satyavati had a benediction like that. That's why Santanu fell in love with her. And then we have that whole drama that ensued from that. So these demigods, they smell good for 80 miles, and the fruit juice dries on the banks, the Bhagavatam says, and turns into gold. And so the demigods make ornaments out of this gold. And that's on the higher planets, but that's not even the highest planet. I can't even imagine what kind of fruit trees they have in, you know, Brahma's planet. And then what to speak of in the spiritual world. I mean, how many varieties of tastes are there? You know, yesterday some devotees made pizza, and they're like, do you want the pizza with tomato sauce? Do you want the pizza with pesto? Do you want the pizza with with that, you know, all varieties. So if you had all varieties of fruit, of drink, of food, all possible varieties of taste, and suppose you could eat all of them at once and enjoy them all simultaneously but distinguish all the different flavors. Now add to that that you're experiencing all the varieties of beautiful things all at once, all together, but being able to distinguish each one. And then all the varieties of sound. I often give this example. There was this man who had a near-death experience. He went to some higher abode, and he described how what he heard were thousands and thousands and thousands of voices singing beautifully to glorify the Lord. And he said they combined into this amazing harmony, although he could distinguish each one of them separately as well. All the smells. If you could, like, you're passing around a rose here. So imagine if you had, does that rose smell nice? Or does it just look like a rose? It actually smells nice. Okay, a lot of the modern roses, they just look like roses. They're Maya roses, you know. They don't have any smell. So, you know, imagine if you're smelling roses and gardenias and jasmines and 
everything, all at once. And yet you could distinguish the different, that's Krishna. And all the varieties of relationships. Each jiva has a slightly different relationship with the Lord. Our acharyas explain when Krishna married 16,100 queens, each form of Krishna was a little different. This is said by Lord Brahma, the Lord accepts whatever form we worship him in. We try to do this in this world. You know, we marry someone and we try to mold them according to what we want them to be, which, by the way, doesn't work. If you're trying to do that, please stop, because it just is useless. But with Krishna, he's actually like that. Because he's unlimited, which can mean that he has unlimited forms and that his form is unlimited. And Srila Sanatana Goswami comments on this in the section of the Bhagavatam, 10th Canto, chapter 13, where it says, or maybe it's 14, where it says that all the cowherd boys and the calves that Krishna had expanded into, they manifested as Vishnu and were worshipped by all living entities. And Srila Sanatana Goswami says that every living entity has a particular quality of Krishna that they're particularly attracted to, and Krishna has unlimited qualities. I know Srila Rupa Goswami lists 64, but they're actually unlimited qualities. So Krishna's enjoying this individual relationship with all of his parts and parcels simultaneously, distinguishing each of them. We can have a little idea of this. You know, you sit down at a family dinner and you've got, you know, your three siblings and your two kids and your parents and your in-laws and let's say everybody loves everybody, which I don't know if that ever happens, but let's just say everybody loves everybody. And so sitting here at this dinner table, you're simultaneously enjoying a different relationship with each person while you're also enjoying a group experience. Right? You have some idea like that. It's a group experience, and yet you're having these individual relationships. Now, Krishna can do this unlimitedly. So therefore, he's called Rasovaisa. He's manifesting all of this rasa, and he's enjoying all of this rasa. He's manifesting it and he's enjoying it. Now what's really interesting is that the way he's manifesting it and enjoying it is he's infusing his internal potency into the living entities. This is nicely explained by Krishna Das Kaviraj in the beginning of Adi Lila when he's describing Ladini Shakti, I think it's in Adi 3. And then the living entities are able to reciprocate with Krishna because he's infusing them with his energy. There's this reciprocation and we'll be studying in Krishna meditation. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do which day. One day I'm going to do from the Gita and one day I'm going to do from the Bhagavatam. I haven't decided which day is which. But on the Bhagavatam one, it's described in the second canto how all tastes are coming from Krishna's tongue. All objects are being produced by his eyes. All smells are being produced by his breathing. All sounds are being produced by his ears. So again, he's Raso Vaisa. Everything is there. All right, you ready for the gotcha here? As I was saying earlier, that Srila Bhakti Santa Sarasvati says that although we're finite, when we're connected with the Lord, our pleasure is infinite. My phone, my computer, has a finite battery. When I plug it into the wall, it has an infinite battery. 
You follow? If it's plugged in, theoretically, I mean, it's a machine, it's going to break. <laughs> but when I plug it into the wall, at least in theory, it has infinite power. If I unplug it, it has finite power. If I apparently unplug from Krishna, I don't, there's not much rasa in me. When I'm plugged in, I actually can experience Krishna's infinite rasa. So how stupid are we? Very stupid. <laughs> We're as stupid as we have the ability to enjoy pleasure. We have the ability to enjoy infinite pleasure, and so by turning away from it, we're infinitely stupid. Which is why the great Acharyas will write these songs, I'm the most sinful of all sinners. And you're looking at them and say, did you ever even steal anything in your life? Like, what are you talking about? Have you burned down buildings and, you know, shot babies and raped women? I mean, what are you talking about? I'm worse. Because as soon as we do this, as soon as we turn from Krishna and we look for pleasure elsewhere, we become the most sinful of all sinners. That, that's what sin is. Sin basically is trying to do something in a way that's wrong. That's why it causes us pain. So I, I give this example all the time. We've got a door. You don't have any windows here. All you have is a door. Just one exit door, right? Two. Two. Well, that one's three exit doors. All right, you've got three exit doors. So if you walk out of any of them, you'll be happy. But if you try to walk out of the wall, you'll be unhappy. In the room where I'm staying, there's one door and two windows. If I try to get out through the windows, I'll also be unhappy. I'll be a lot more unhappy if I try to get out through the windows than if I try to get out through the wall. So sin is trying to enjoy through walls and windows. You're trying to enjoy in some way that's unnatural, in some way that's not there, in some way that's not meant for enjoyment. It's not exactly, I mean, sort of, but it's not exactly that you do sin and Krishna punishes you. Like he's just, ah, oh, you terrible person, take this. It's not exactly like that. I mean, it is in one sense, but in another sense, it's not. The, the pain we feel from sin is the natural result of doing something that's not supposed to be done. It's like if I tried to eat this cup instead of drinking the water, I would feel pain. And it's not that the person who manufactured the cup or the person who gave me the water is trying to punish me. Yeah? So when I look outside myself for happiness, I'm going to suffer. Not because Krishna's like, you have to surrender to me to be happy, and if you don't, you will suffer. It's not like that. You know, so many religionists present God like that. You have to believe in me, you have to serve me, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you don't, I'm going to damn you to eternal fire. <laughs> I thought, that's not a nice guy. Like if some parent did that, they'd put them in jail. I mean, it, it, who wants to be with that? I, 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 it confuses me. Like why would I want to spend eternity with someone like this? That's what Ravana was like. 
Ravana said to Sita, if you don't surrender to me, I'm going to cut you up and eat you for breakfast. That's evil. So the reason we suffer when we don't surrender to Krishna is we're trying to do something that's not real. It's not natural. It's not that the architects or the builders designed the walls to give you pain. Let's make a wall here or a window so people will suffer when they try to go through it. You know, that's ridiculous. So when the deer is leaving the water in the, in the grass that it can't see and running into the desert, it suffers because that's not where water is. So when I'm looking for happiness outside of myself, when I'm thinking I'm going to get happiness by my relationships with other jivas separate from Krishna. I'm going to get happiness by having a lot of things. I'm going to get happiness by having a lot of power. Somehow I'm going to be able to manipulate the material world to get happiness. All we get is suffering. Have we all experienced this? You just get suffering. You get some illusion of happiness, but you just get suffering. So all we have to do is turn within. That's it. Just turn our attention to Krishna, who's already there, and our relationship with Krishna is already there. Now, how do we do this? So there's a little hint here, and again, I'd like to hear from all of you what your take on this, because I found this extremely mysterious. Mm -hmm. The taste of water is Krishna. To quench one's thirst, one must taste water by association with Krishna. This is the Vedic injunction. So I don't think that Srila Prabhupada is just talking about appreciating Krishna and water here. I think he's also talking metaphorically because after all, this verse is a in the form of a metaphor. By the way, a lot of the Shastra is in the form of a metaphor. So my own take on this, which is arguably influenced by the Krishna meditation book that I've written and that I'm teaching, is that one of the main ways, one of the most important ways in which we look within is by seeing Krishna in the world. By changing our view of the within and without by seeing that in one sense it isn't a within and a without, that Krishna is everywhere. And that I can also find Krishna within by my relationship with Krishna everywhere. That apparently that's Krishna outside of myself, but it isn't because Krishna is everywhere. As he says, Maya tatamidam sarvam jagadavyaktam by me in my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. All beings are in me, but I am not in them. So this was one of our key Bhagavad Gita verses that we taught to our Gurukul children. And after teaching that one year, I heard two six-year-olds, we were having a break time, and they were talking with each other, and they said, Mother Amila doesn't understand about Krishna consciousness. She told us something very wrong. Yeah. She told us, all beings are in me, but I am not in them. That's wrong. Krishna's in everyone's heart. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then the next verse, Krishna said, yet everything that is created does not rest in me. Everything's in me, it's not in me. I am in everything, I am not in everything. That's one of the chapter slokis of the Bhagavatam also. I enter but I remain separate. And Lord Brahma says this to Krishna after, you know, he comes back to see what happened. And he says, Mother Yasoda looked inside you and she saw me. And yet here I am standing outside talking to you. This is, of course, the inconceivableness. We have this nice verse in the Brahma Samhita, my uh, late god brother Sadaputta used to like to quote, Ekopasovratayatam jagadanda koti yachakterasti jagadanda yatayayaranta andantarasta paramanu chayantarasta. That the whole universe is within Krishna. Okay, can you all visualize that? That's pretty easy. You've seen paintings of that, right? Madhyasoda looks in Krishna's mouth and the whole universe is there. Everybody's got that? Okay. Now, within every atom, there's Krishna. So you can visualize that too. You can make a picture in your mind of how there's a little super soul in every atom. So all the walls and the pictures and the floor and there's little, little, little super souls everywhere. All right, now let's put that together. So within every atom of this microphone, so there's a gazillion little Krishnas here as a super soul and then inside of each of them, there's the whole universe including the microphone. Now you go, ah! So understanding that Krishna is within and without, as I see Krishna without, I can understand Krishna within. This is also the concept of anudipana, which is part of rasa. <laughs> what stimulates us. You know, they, uh, in, the, in this world we call these triggers, although usually people talk about triggers as something negative. But there are positive triggers too. You know, you smell something and that triggers your love for your grandma who used to cook that thing. You know, you see some photograph and it, it triggers you thinking about some place that was wonderful or some event that was wonderful. These are, are udipanas. So everything should be an udipana for Krishna and one of them, of course, is drinking water. Do any of you have any water here with you? Anyone who has water, can you get it out and drink some? Can you open up your water? Anyone who has I see a few people have water. Who has water? Can you drink some water? Yeah, you. Is that water? Can you drink some? <laughs> it's just a water bottle. There's no water inside. It's a Maya bottle, huh? <laughs> and Prabhupada says here, Krishna is a taste of water or anything liquid. Actually, it can be taken beyond that that all rasa has some liquidity in it. Like if you want to see something beautiful, you have to have some liquidity in your eyes, right? If your eyes are dry, they won't work. You have to have some wax in your ear. You have to have some mucus in your nose. You have to have some oil on your skin. Rasa in Ayurveda is liquidity. It, it's flowing. So Krishna is this pleasure in everything. And when we see the active principle of pleasure in everything is actually Krishna then that also helps us understand, I already have Krishna in my heart, I already have my relationship with Krishna. Everything that I'm contacting with my senses and my mind brings me closer to that relationship with Krishna. It is a stimulant for that relationship with Krishna, it brings me closer to my relationship with Krishna, and what's the evidence that we're doing this is that we use everything in Krishna's service. 
In other words, this isn't just some like, woo, I see Krishna everywhere. It is that, but it isn't just that. Right? That's the inner emotional experience. That's the vyavichari bhavs. But there's also anubhavs. One also actually, if I see that Krishna is this table, how am I going to treat the table? I see that Krishna's in this table. This table's in him. It's part of his energy. When I touch the table, he can feel it. Then how am I going to use the table? How am I going to interact with the table such that it will nourish my internal relationship with Krishna? And if we do that, then we become unlimitedly happy. So why don't I do this all the time? Because I'm an unlimited fool. I'm just as foolish as this deer that's standing right next to this, wa this water and just looks at it and says, oh, that's just grass. I'm thinking, oh, that's just a table. Oh, that's just water. Oh, that's just a body. And not seeing that actually Vasudevam Sarvamiti. So questions, comments, or any other inspiration you have on those two sentences at the end, I'd be very interested to hear that. Corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Yes. Yes. But at the same time, understanding that Krishna is everywhere, what would be the wrong to look for happiness outside, understanding that Krishna is outside? When, be, because you're so, you, you're, you don't want to look for happiness outside of, your, of Krishna. When, you, when you're seeing the happiness in the taste of water or the light of the sun, or the sound of the birds, if you're actually experiencing that, that the sound of the birds are his artistic sense. The light of the sun is Krishna. Like I heard Prabhupada saying the other day to someone, if you want to see God, see God as he says to see him. See him in the light of the sun. Oh, that's my Lord. That is looking within. Looking outside of yourself is people trying to enjoy Krishna's energy without understanding that it's also Krishna. So can we understand that uh, the happiness inside or looking inside or outside is just a question of consciousness, where we see Krishna? Yes, that's why it's called the Krishna Consciousness Movement. Mm -hmm. Another question, if you allow me, it's in the beginning you said uh, we need to see each it's ourselves. We see ourselves. That, what that means to see ourselves? What is the means to see ourselves? Can anybody help her? How can we see ourselves? You're very stupid, so you don't know. Well, that's ignorance, not stupidity. My father used to always say there's a big difference between stupidity and ignorance. If you already have something and you're running in the wrong direction, that's stupid. If you don't know how to find what you already have, that's just ignorance, that's not stupidity. How do we see ourselves? In a mirror! Woohoo! Oh, I'm so happy. I am so happy you said that. 
that wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but that's a much better answer than the answer that I had in my own head. Well, in a mirror. Well, let's go with the mirror. So, what does the mirror have to be in order for you to see yourself in it? Clean. What's the Sanskrit word for mirror? Darpana. And what's the Sanskrit word for cleaning? You have to do some darpana marginum. We already have a mirror. It's just that it's dirty. What's the dirt on the mirror? What is that dirt? It's an arthas. It's primarily our ahankar. Yeah, it's, it's these anarthas. So we've got, you know, have you ever had like a really, really dirty pot? Like the stuff got burned onto it? I had a devotee once borrow without asking me. She was a tell president's wife, and anyway, Hare Krishna. So she borrowed my pot. And I only had one pot at that point in my life. One pot. It was a nice pot. One liter pot, stainless steel, copper bottom, really high quality. It was my only pot. Anyway, she took it without asking me, and she burned it, and then she just threw it away. And my husband went to her husband and said, could you ask your wife to clean that pot? And he said, nah, it's useless. Hare Krishna. So I had to clean the pot. Well, I mean, I didn't have to, but I liked the pot. <laughs> I don't have that pot anymore. It took me a while, yeah, if a pot's really burned. You ever cleaned it? Like you can't really do it all in one go? You know? You're scrubbing it and 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 scrubbing it. And then you let it soak, maybe with some sodium bicarbonate or something to loosen the stuff. Then you come back and you scrub it and you scrub it and you scrub it. And eventually, what happens? You start to see a little silver color. Maybe it's just like this much. And that's very exciting. So our, our mirror of our consciousness is like that. It's got this encrusted stuff on it. Avishwaraham, ahambogi, siddham. That's that's the stuff that's on it. And so we're idea. The idea is that we're trying to clean this. So that's primarily through our. How do we clean that? Mostly through our chanting. But everything. I mean, worshiping the deity, reading the Bhagavatam, coming to a holy place, association with devotees, taking prasadam, doing various service, cleaning the temple. Oh, I wanted to say that the brass here on the altar is the cleanest and shiniest I have ever seen in any ISKCON temple ever in my entire time in the Hare Krishna movement. Like, I don't know who's doing this, but wow. And I've had that as my service, cleaning the, the brass and the silver, but I have, I've never seen brass like this. Prabhupada says the brass should, should shine like gold, and it really does. Every bit of the brass everywhere, it's just like, oh my God. There's not one dull spot anywhere, so who's ever doing that? Wow. That's also doing Cheto Darpana Marjana. Cleaning the Lord's paraphernalia, cleaning the floor, cleaning the bathrooms. Serving the prasad, everything we're doing is meant to do cheto darpana marginam. Of course, it will be much more effective if we know that that's why we're doing it. 
Like Prabhupada was asked, do you make more advancement living in the temple than outside? Prabhupada says that depends on whether or not his mind is on another subject matter. So if you're cleaning the floor going, I hate that devotee over there. <laughs> or I wonder what my investments in crypto are doing right now. then the Cheto Darpana Marjanam effect will be much, it will take a long time. Like Prabhupada said, if we're chanting and thinking of some mundane subject matter, he said it will be useless. He said, or it will take a long time. Anything else? Yes. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Oh, well, that was easy because this whole verse was a picture. What does that look like? Um, you're going to look really bright. Anyone who comes in, in your area is going to notice how bright you are. You're going to look bright and shiny. Even, even, if, even if physically you're sick, and even if physically you're, you're you know, if you went to a eschatologists, they might look at your skin and say you really have a lot of problems with your skin. So even if on the external platform, you know, you haven't bought, bought the cosmetics to make you have a glow, but you're going to look like you're glowing, you will be doing a lot of smiling. You might be singing. You ask me, but of course that's what it sounds like. But what does it look like? That's what it looks like. I meant like my my apologies if I wasn't clear enough. I was saying like what does it what does it feel like internally to me? How do you know when you're doing that? So here I, I like Bhagavad Gita nine two. Does anyone know Bhagavad Gita nine two? Oh, Melbourne is, is also, I mean, not only is your brass the cleanest in the movement, but you guys are really Shastra Chakshus here. That's not true everywhere, by the way. A lot of temples I go, I ask a really basic question, and people are just like, I'm thinking they're not reading. Okay, can we say that first? Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam, Pavitram, Idam Uttamam, Pratyaksha Vagamam Dharmam, Su Sukam Kartamam Raja Vidya, you feel that you're full of knowledge. Raja Guyam, you have a sense of knowing the essence of things. We've had so much musical accompaniment this class. It, it should actually be like. You're talking about painting pictures. Wouldn't it be nice if you guys actually had the music match what I was saying, like at the right dramatic times, you know? <laughs> now that would be really cool. So, Raja Guyam, you know, you got the essence. Haven't you felt like that when you're doing service? You're like, oh, I understand the essence of things. Yes? We, we, we call those realizations. In the outside world, they call them epiphanies. You know, you'd be having a lot of realizations and epiphanies all the time. Pavitram. You feel that you're getting cleansed. 
you know, even if you're doing some service, like it was recently in Indonesia, where it was hot. <laughs> it was really hot. Even with fans, you know, as, as soon as you're not in AC, you're just like dripping. <laughs> but you're still feeling, although you're feeling yucky from the perspiration, you're still feeling purified. Pavitram. You feel like you're getting purified. Even if you're working out in the garden or you're taking out the rubbish and externally you're getting dirtier, you feel like you're getting purified. Pratyaksha. You're directly experiencing this. Prabhupada often quotes that verse in the 11th canto. What is that? The three things that happen when you eat. Satisfaction, nourishment, and hunger is satisfied. And Prabhupada compares this all the time. He said, you don't need a certificate from others. You don't need to ask somebody. I mean, I was saying you're glowing, but you don't need to say, am I glowing? I don't know if I'm doing this service right. Did, did you see the glow? <laughs> you experience it, Pratyaksha. You experience it yourself. I'm feeling satisfied. I'm feeling nourished. I'm feeling fulfilled. Agamam dharma. Dharma means what's authentic. I mean, one of the, the keys is that I start feeling authentic happiness. And I always compare it to, you know, real mango juice from a real mango and mango-flavored water, you know. Like, I'm sure in Australia, it's like America, where you can go to the shop and buy, like, fake juice. I'm sure they have that stuff here. You can even buy a whole gallon of the stuff. It's just water with sugar and, and a little artificial flavor. Maybe there's, you know, 1% fruit juice in the thing. Juicy juice or something, you know, they'll call it some name like that. Juicy drink. Juicy drink. I never had a tree-ripened peach until I was like 20. We went out to an orchard where some friend of the devotees was going to donate all the peaches that hadn't been harvested to the temple. And we picked all these tree-ripened peaches. And on the way back to the temple, our, our oldest son was like one and a half year old and he wanted to eat a peach. So, I mean, they were all, we were taking them to the temple, so we weren't going to be eating them. That's why I was eating them and trying to explain why I was eating these peaches that we were actually supposed to bring to the temple. So, you know, he really wanted to eat a peach and the devotee said, okay, I can give him a peach. So I offered one peach and being only one year old, he didn't finish the peach. Any of you who have kids, you understand how this works. So, you know, there was a whole bunch of peach left, which I then ate, and I went, oh my God, I never had a peach before in my life. I could understand immediately that it was authentic. Yes? And we have that experience. You'll be in a kirtan, and you'll experience something that you've never experienced before in a musical concert. And you're thinking, okay, this singer doesn't have that great of a voice. The Murdunga player, like they probably couldn't charge money for their Murdunga playing. You know, materially, it's not like incredible, but what am I experiencing that I've never experienced even in an incredible musical performance? Mahaprabhu talked about this in regard to prasadam, that there's ordinary, I don't have time to tell that story right now, but there's ordinary ingredients, but you taste it and you go, what is this? And I've got lots and lots of prasadam stories like that. 
You know, I remember the first time that I tasted Sandesh, and I went, what is this? And all day at work, I was just like, what was? Because I had been a, a, a professional chef, and I was like, what? I couldn't understand. What is this? You know, and I went back to the temple in the evening. I said, what was that? And they said, oh, milk and sugar. I'm like, nah. <laughs> they said, well, a little lemon. I, Maybe that was it. Just, I don't think so. You know, you're reading these books, and, and you get this experience that you don't get from reading some ordinary philosophy book or self-help book or story book. You get something that's authentic, you follow? And you can tell the difference. You're like, wow. Dharmam, susukam. Not just sukha, but susukam. You get in touch with what we're talking about. I, I'm happy. And it's not even sattva happiness. I mean, sattva happiness is pretty cool if you just have Rajas and Thomas happiness. Sattva happiness is pretty amazing. But spiritual happiness is so much more amazing than sattva happiness. And even if you just get a little bit of it, you're like, wow. So those are your, ex, ex, um, what do we call it? Success parameters. 9-2 is a really good example. And then that first, I can't remember the number, from the 11th canto. Now, it will help, and we'll talk about this with career dharma, if you're doing service that's according to your nature. And Krishna says this. You can argue with him if you like. And we'll talk about this when we talk about career dharma. When I do service for Krishna that's according to my nature, I will, it's very easy for all of these things to happen. If I do service for Krishna that's not according to my nature, it's very difficult for all those things to happen. They can still happen, but it's extremely difficult. I'll have to work, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand times as hard, and Krishna says not to do that. I mean, if it's an emergency, that's something. If it's a brief, temporary, you know, rare emergency. But generally, if I'm doing work for Krishna according to my nature, all these results happen very easily and naturally without much effort on my part. Is that all right? Still something, not, you're not quite satisfied yet? No, fully satisfied with, okay. Well, we've got two minutes. Ah, come to my class. Read my book. <laughs> so thank you very much for advertising my book that's for sale here. I really appreciate that. It's not just my book. I mean, it's not really my book at all. I wrote it with a co-author, Dr. Ruchiridatta. But one thing that, I, that I've realized... I mean, for, in the beginning when we were working on this, I was thinking mostly about Prabhupada, you know, that this is what Prabhupada wanted. He wanted us to establish Varnashram in society. But uh, the more I've been teaching it, the more I've seen that it's not just that, but it's actually the Shastra. You know, we bring into our movement many non-Shastric things that we try to Shastraize. I mean, I do that too. I, I teach things. I'm going to see you, right? You're not running away, right? Okay. Yeah, that's, but I will see you, yes? Okay. They see how she's glowing? You can see that right there. 
But very much with this, with this book, you know, I, I'm seeing that we're simply allowing the Shastra to manifest through us. How does Krishna, ex why does explain throughout the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam, what is our nature? How do we find what is our nature? How do we use our nature properly? Not just find what is your nature, but use it properly. And what would an ideal society look like if the majority of people were doing that? So and so far we have three temples who are working with me to try to institute that in their, in their temple, working with me and my co-author. So yeah, that's hopefully Krishna willing. I mean, life is uncertain. One never knows. But hopefully Krishna... When am I teaching that? Sunday? Sunday. And, but you can get the book. It is here. Cheaper than Amazon. Srila <laughs> <laughs> Prabhupada Ki That's kind of the idea. If they don't, we're in trouble. <laughs> sure. If there's a question about nature or work, I prefer you come to the seminar first. Yes, I will. But this is more personal. I think I've discussed it with you in the previous years. I was wondering if sure. When would be a good time for me to see? Um. Today, I, today I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Thursday morning, my boy, I have a call at 10, but other than that, I'm pretty open Thursday. I'm cooking on this thing. I think I'll be busy myself. Would you have any time tomorrow or? Um, tomorrow maybe I'll be right. I mean, maybe if you want to have breakfast with me tomorrow. I'll be happy to sign books for you if you want Thank me to you. sign a book. Oh, mother, yes, yes. But let me, let me get off, off of here. Let me get up. Would you like me to sign all three of them for you? Yes. We saw you in Bali last month. Oh, yes. I was thinking that. Do you remember how hot it was there? Yes. And we we attended this Krishna meditation seminar. Oh, we with the slides and everything. But you didn't get the book there. We before it ended, we had finished. Yeah. Ah. And I, yeah, I heard you were coming here, so. <laughs> Is this where you live? Um, uh, yes. yes. So you were just visiting me at Christmas time. It's one week we were there. Enjoyed being in the heat. 
Okay, the kids enjoy it.